very interesting things. And uh, I just, um, you know, th- this week has been uh, a really challenging heart sore week, but also a week of just great thanksgiving. And I'm just so thankful for, for John and Candy and the way that the Lord has used them in this church family. And in a, in a smaller way, just because of time, the way that the Lord's used them in my life. And you guys have been so encouraging. And um, I just, so one of my prayers in the search committee thing, there was a little bit of a delay from when I sent my resume in until I heard back. And I just figured, well, they've moved on and I was moving on to other things. And I found out it was later that it was because uh, Johnny had some health issues. And it just was um, so encouraging over this period of time, just um, the way that the Lord has answered a prayer of mine. I prayed two things for Johnny. One was that the Lord would allow us to overlap. And the Lord answered that prayer. And that was just really wonderful. The other was that God would have his bone marrow start working. And God didn't answer that prayer the way I intended. But either his bone marrow is now working or he doesn't need it anymore. So the Lord did answer it, just not the way that I intended. But it just one of the things that's been so encouraging to me is to see how much people love you guys. And just when I got here, how, how often you your family and you guys were talked about and just what a, it says a lot about the way you loved the people in the church. So anyway, well, um, I couldn't pass that up, uh, but I do want to say that, that Johnny is not concerned about anything we're talking about today because uh, he's got everything all worked out and everything is good for him. Uh, just, I want to say one other thing, um, two pieces of advice, or a piece of advice Johnny gave me. I just asked him, I said, hey, give me some advice. And he just said, you know, people need to be loved. They need to know God's love. And I love the way that that was expressed on the website. And his, one of his verses, his, one of his favorite verses was, um, immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. And I just love the way that puts together our responsibility to reach out to God, but the way we even need, we need God's help to even do our part. And I just love how that uh, is put together. Jude. Uh, I felt, I think, a little bit like Jude, you know, uh, was he was writing, he, he wanted to write something else, and then he says, but I had to write you this. And I was just thinking, man, we've been talking a lot about false teaching and judgment. It's like, hey, here we go again this morning. Um, Something that really stands out is that, you know, attacks from without can be very devastating. But the most devastating attacks are always the attacks, the attacks that come from within. Think about that. The attacks can, there are harmful things that happen from without a family. But when a family is attacked from within, think about spies. You know, in military warfare, you want spies. You want someone to go infiltrate. And that, in, to some degree, is what we're talking about this morning, what Jude is writing about. If you think about this, the church is the source of help. It's, it's the, 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 the organization that God has intended to bring the message And so if Satan can actually infiltrate the church and mess up the message of the church, well, he's now one because he's got you. But if you go to a place for help, but you're getting Satan when you go to a place for help, well, then then he's, he's, he's covered all the bases. And that's really the book of Jude is talking about that we need to make sure that the church is what the church is supposed to be. And when you think about that, the church, the world is lost 
But the church needs to be a place where people can come to be found. And we need to lovingly welcome hurting, misguided, lost people. But we need to be able to be a place where lost people can be found, where hurting people can be healed, where misguided people can be pointed to Christ. Like that's the purpose of the church. That's who we need to be. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 3.14. He says uh, this. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a buttress, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. That's what the church is. And, and we need to make sure that we're fulfilling that. So this morning, we're going to consider three important things. Uh, number one, uh, his, his opening appeal and the rest of the book is really working that out, is that we contend for the faith that we're defending it, that we are contending, that we, are, we understand what it is and we're defending it to the world to make sure that what the church is supposed to be, it is. And then he tells us how to do that. There's two things. One is we gotta make sure we're not misled. We gotta make sure that we don't get misguided. And finally, we need to make sure that we are remaining faithful to eternal priorities. So let's look at Jude. Let's start reading this. It's Jude chapter 1, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So we know that Jude was the brother of Jesus. And so it's interesting that he describes himself as a servant of Jesus. He doesn't say, I'm Jude, Jesus' brother. He says, I'm Jude, a servant of Jesus, but brother of James, the James who wrote the book of James. To those who are called beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. I love the way Jude starts with the whole idea that God is the one who keeps us, and he ends with two of my favorite verses talking about how God is the one who keeps us. So the beginning and ending of Jude is that God is the one who keeps us. It's, we're not relying on our own strength. It's God that gives us that confidence. And so he's talking to people who God has got his hand on, and then he says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Man, Jude loves these people. He wants good things in their life. And then verse three, uh, contend for the faith. We'll, we'll see this, contend for the faith. And, and I love where, where Jude is headed. He said, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So he was eager to write about their common salvation. I just think, you know, I guess there's some people that they really like delivering bad news. Uh, you know, I've, I told you guys a story about the guy that, you know, was carrying the cross around Lancaster Boulevard when I was a kid growing up and saying, you are going to burn in hell. And, you know, there's probably people who like saying those things. And that's not me. I always prefer to be the one delivering good news. It's like, is there bad news? Okay, you go give it. You know, if there's good news, I want to be the one to deliver the good news. And Jude is just saying, I love you, and I want to talk about our common salvation. And I was thinking about the common salvation, you know, 
First um, Corinthians two nine. This is what the apostle Paul says. He says, "But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Heaven is so good you can't even describe it. It is so wonderful." And you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna try not to keep doing this, but I just think that's where Johnny is right now. He's face to face with Jesus. You know, we see dimly, he's seeing face to face, and heaven is so good. It's so good that the apostle Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When the apostle Paul looks at the end of his life, he he's like, he's not fearing death. He's saying, Oh man, I, I would actually like to die. But he goes on. And he says, but, you know, I know God loves you guys and he's going to leave me here to help you, but I'd actually rather be in heaven. And in, in, um, in the book of Corinthians, uh, the apostle Paul talks about the fact that God took him up into heaven and let, gave him a glimpse of heaven and that those visions were so amazing that God had to then afflict him physically. Because if he wasn't afflicted physically, he would become prideful and arrogant. And he kept praying, God, get rid of this physical affliction I have. But God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And you need that. You need that because I've shown you such great visions and you'll be prideful. That'll destroy you. I'm not going to let that happen. So you're going to suffer. And, uh, and that's what God did. That's how great heaven is. That's how wonderful it is. Wouldn't it be better to just get together and talk about the good news and that's what Jude says. He says, I really wanted to write to you about good news. But there was this really urgent matter. He said, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, this is something that kind of stands out to me a little bit. He says, I want to write to you about our common salvation. But instead, I'm writing that you contend for the faith doesn't that kind of seem like a synonym, faith and common salvation? I mean, those things go together, right? In fact, that word for faith sometimes is translated as believer. Like Abraham, the believer, it's that word for faith. And so in some ways they're similar, but there is a difference. Talking about our common salvation is to focus on what it means to be saved and all that God has for us in our salvation. But faith includes the body of truth that we believe. It's the belief, it's the truth that leads to salvation. So what Jude is saying is you have to contend earnestly for the faith, this body of truth, that if it gets corrupted, people will not be going to heaven. They'll be learning instead false doctrine. And so we have to know what the truth is. We have to have people that are teaching what God's word says, not some tweaked variation of it, but what it really says, the things we like to hear and the things we don't like to hear. We need to know everything that God says. And so he says, you need to contend earnestly for this truth. And so that's what he's saying here. He says, contend for that. And he says that it is once for all delivered. Remember the Apostle Paul, he writes and he says, even if I or an angel of light gives you a different gospel, let that person be accursed. 
The gospel doesn't change. It is the same. It never changes. And we need to know what it is. We need to hold to it. As, you know, a lot of people, oh, the Bible's out of date, and we have a different culture, and things are different now. No, the truth of the gospel was delivered once for all, and it never changes. We never vary from it. And so he says, you need to contend for this. It was once for all delivered. And when you think about that, this body of truth, it does include the basics of the gospel message. Jesus is God, died on the cross for your sins, rose again from the dead. What salvation is, it's by grace through faith. And that um, we don't earn our salvation, we don't deserve it, we don't work for it, we're not trying to maintain it. And so it is that, but you know it's actually everything God says about life? It's how that applies to everything. It's all of the wisdom that God has given us in his word is that body of truth because it all comes back to the gospel. All the things that God tells us really flow out of a right understanding of the gospel. In fact, Romans 12, 2 says this, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Now, our church vision statement, right? Unconditionally accept people where they are and encourage at transforming life in Christ, right? So what does Paul say here? Don't be conformed to the world. The church is not supposed to be the world. It's supposed to be different. Uh, As believers, we should not be like unbelievers. We should be different. We're to be transformed. Well, how does Paul say that happens? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you, knew, that you will know how to think rightly about things, that you'll think rightly about suffering, that you'll think rightly about pleasure and happiness and the goals and the pursuit of life, that you'll think rightly about how do I shepherd my kids, how do we shepherd each other, how do we share the gospel, how do we approach different things in life. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's that we think the way God tells us how to think. And how do we know what that is? It's easy. We read the Bible. Because that is an expression of God's will for us. He's teaching us and training us how to think about things. And that is one of the things I love about the Bible is that you get to see the way God has interacted. Not only do you get direct teaching where God says, do this and say this. Have you ever um, given somebody advice and they tried to follow your advice, but they did something completely different than what you intended? And you're like, um, no, that's not exactly what I meant. Well, one of the great things about the Bible is that God has given us specific teaching, but then he's also, throughout history, from Genesis through Revelation, described situations, described people, described this person did this, and then God did this in response. And so we actually get to see things lived out, and it brings this truth into context where we go, okay, so now I understand what that means. And, you know, the Bible says sin's destructive. Well, look at all these people who departed from what God said and how that sin destroyed their life. Oh, the Bible says God's gracious and forgiving. Well, look at these people who did these unthinkable things. And look how God was there to love them, forgive them, and put their life back together. And so we have the entire Bible 
to read, to understand, and to put God's teaching in context. So we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so uh, how do we do that? Well, you know, when you come to Scripture, you need to start by just being at the place that you accept it for what it really is. First Thessalonians, the word of God, not the words of men. See, there's a lot of people that want to undermine Scripture and say, oh, no, it's not God's word. It's just somebody's opinion. Or, no, I don't accept that. Or, I don't like how that. If the Bible is not God's authority, if the Bible's not authoritative, then what is? And it's actually not that hard to figure out. It's you. And I think a lot of times the reason that people want to discount Scripture and the, and the reason that people have all these things to say about the Bible is because if they can say, hey, the Bible is not God's standard and authority, now I become God's standard and authority. Now I decide what's right. And I say, yes, I like that. That makes sense to me. This is what I'll believe. And we all need to be people that take a step back and say, this isn't about what I want to believe. This is about what's true and real. This is about what God says. And so we accept God's word for what it is, but there's another thing that has to happen. You got to actually read the Bible so you know what it says. I was thinking about the fact that the major doctrines of Scripture, the things that we hold to, that we say you have to believe this, they are not found in one verse. Uh, if you think about even this whole thing of false teaching and false teachers and people creeping in, it's like, how long have I been here? <laughs> you know, I've been here like a month and a half or something. I should probably add that up so I could answer that question correctly. But, but in the short time that I've been here, how many times have we run across the same things in Scripture? And so Scripture com communicates it from this angle and from that angle. And the major doctrines of Scripture, you can't take a verse and twist it and get away with that because if you've read everything that the Bible says, you're like, no, I see how you could twist that verse to say that, but you know, that doesn't actually match with any of the other things that Scripture says. And so when you're reading the whole Bible and when you're putting it all together, you will understand and you will be protected against error. And so we need to be people who in our life just read the Bible. Now I think about some ladies who did that. So I went to seminary and took all these classes and I went to Bible college and then I went to seminary. So just those two things, that's a lot of education on the Bible. And when we would go places and do um, Bible trivia games, you would think that people around would want me on their team. I mean, if we're playing Bible trivia and I came to your house, wouldn't you want me on your team? Yeah. But I just got to tell you, uh, my last church, nobody wanted me on the team. There were these two ladies that used to attend our church who never went to college, who never went to seminary. They were just moms. And they grew, they grew up reading the Bible every single day. And years and years of reading the Bible, they knew people's names. You guys know I'm bad with names. So ask me what somebody's name is in the Bible. I forget it too. It's not just your name I forget. But... Um, but you know what? They could tell you the name of this person and the name of that person, and they knew this Bible story, and they knew that Bible story, and these were faithful ladies that in my early years of ministry would come up, and after, after I taught something or after I did something or after I said something, they would very graciously and lovingly pull me to the side and say, hey, Raj, if you thought about this, I think you should reconsider that, and, and God used them in my life because they were people who just read the Bible, they thought about it, they taught their kids, and it was just, it was just that they just read it every single day. 
Now think about how many people, like if, if you're 50 and you've read the Bible at least 50 times, um, some, for some of us, you know, maybe we're that old and we haven't read the Bible that often. Well, I just want to encourage you, it doesn't actually matter how old you are and it doesn't matter how many years you didn't read the Bible, you can start today. You want to know when the best time to plant a tree is? Like 50 years ago, nice, big, huge tree. You want to know the second best time to plant a tree? Today. And so if you haven't been reading the Bible like you should, so what? Start today. And so we need to be people that can contend earnestly for the faith because we're reading the Bible and because we're understanding it. Um, Let's look at verse 4. We need to make sure that we're not misled. This is his next challenge. Look at this, verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. He's not saying be careful because somebody will creep in, somebody might creep in. He writes to this church and he says people have already crept in and you didn't notice them. And why didn't they notice them? They didn't notice because they were not people of the word. They hadn't been reading the Bible the way they should. They were not paying attention the way they should be paying attention. They were just thinking, hey, this is the church. We all love each other. Everybody here is good. Nobody was taking a step back and saying, wait a second. Satan's intention is never to leave the church alone. So if we have a good thing going here, Satan's going to try to mess it up. And when he sends in a spy, when he sends in somebody to be harmful to the church, how will we know? Like they were unaware. They weren't looking. They weren't being careful to figure that out. And so he says, people have crept in unnoticed. And then he describes these people. Now, I would never describe a person this way. But I'm not the one who's here to describe people. God is the one who does that. Let me read what he says about these people. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and the Lord Jesus. And then he's actually going to go on and he has some other really harsh things to say about these people. And um, it reminds me of uh, how, how God feels about people in his church. Remember Jesus says anybody who causes one of these little ones of mine to stumble would have been better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and be thrown into the deepest sea. God does not say, oh yeah, these are my kids, I love them, but if you want to hurt them, go ahead. That's not how God feels. And being loving and gracious, would, would you say, hey, we need to be loving and gracious. We need to welcome people. There is a serial killer, and, and he kidnaps people, and he eats them and tortures them and does things like that. And you know what? He's coming to church. Let's let him teach Sunday school. Because, you know, the thing is, he said he really wants to teach Sunday school, and we don't want to hurt his feelings. We don't want to be mean. But you know what's interesting? There's a lot of people that are so sad on being nice and friendly and kind that they miss the significance and the importance of guarding and protecting people and say, I love you and I want you to know the truth. Uh, I remember in my early years of ministry, there was this group of guys that used to come to youth group and they had bad motives. Uh, They just figured, hey, I'm I'm older, I'm mature and I'm cool and we got a a bunch of young, naive girls here in youth group. And they had some interesting plans for these young ladies. And so when they came to youth group, um, I just grabbed them, pulled them to the side, and I said, hey, I love you. You're welcome here. We're really glad you're here. 
But you see those three girls over there? You're not allowed to talk to them. See these guys over here? They're here to love you, care about you, build you up. You can hang out with them. But I don't want to see you talking to these girls. Um, I, had a, I had a professor in seminary. He heard about a guy who would go from church to church and create problems. And one Sunday, he saw that guy sitting in his church. And he met him at the back door, and he leaned over, he smiled at him, and he said, hey, thank you for coming. Don't ever come back. <laughs> you know what, as a parent... Um, we understand what it means to love people, to guide them, pr to protect them. Now, I want to just, those guys that I almost, I talked to, they kept kind of trying to blow me off, and they would go over and talk to the girls, and I was paying attention. I saw them do it. I walked over there and said, no, sorry, guys, can't talk to them. You're over that way. And I actually sat down with the youth leaders, and I said, you know, um, these guys are here, and they're disregarding what we say, and, and we seriously considered, I, I was like a week or two away from going to those, one of those guys and just saying, hey, um, you can't come here anymore, which is totally against everything. I want everybody to come. And what was so awesome is that a week later, we go to this youth event, and one of these kids had so many serious legal problems in his life, and it had just come down, and he had been arrested, and his mom was having to pay these massive fines to try to get him out of trouble, and somebody presents the gospel. He gets saved. He comes forward, and the Lord totally transformed his life. And so for the next few years after that, he was like, Roger, I want to hang out with you. I want to spend time with you. And I just said, okay, look, I don't have that much time, but if you'll come into the office on Mondays, I'll give you a bunch. You can make flyers for me. You could do all this stuff for me, and you'll save me like two or three hours, and I'll spend two or three hours with you every week. And so he would come into the office. He would help me with ministry, and then I would spend time discipling him. And it was just amazing how this guy that I was about to say, you can't come back, God saves him, changes his life, but never would I say, oh, yeah, welcome in. These girls are here for you to pray on. Uh-uh, we don't do that. And that's what James is, or Jude is saying here is that these people, they've, kept in, they've crept in unnoticed, and he describes them. Um, you know, this whole idea of creeping in unnoticed, Acts 20, Paul tells the elders, and from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Jesus himself said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Have you ever thought about what does a, a wolf in sheep's clothing look like? Um, okay, any cult leaders, anybody here who'd like to destroy people's lives and mislead them? Like, nobody raises their hand. And i got to tell you something else. A lot of times the people who are wolves in sheep's clothing, they don't even know they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, some do. But one of the things that the Bible tells us is that some of these false teachers are deceiving and being deceived. So they a lot of times don't even know who they are. They're just driven and motivated by sinful, fleshly desires. Um, have you guys ever heard of uh, don't drink the Kool-Aid? Do you guys know where that comes from? Yeah, right. Uh, that guy was an ordained pastor, uh, ordained Presbyterian pastor, I think. I can't remember the denomination, but he was an ordained pastor. There was an assembly of God, um, you know, district superintendent that helped him plan his first church. 
and he's gathering people up and he says he's a Christian, he's shepherding and teaching people. And then years later, he's got this massive number of people that he convinces to drink poison and to kill themselves. And I was reading somewhere that until 9-11, that was the largest death of American uh, civilians ever until 9-11. And so we need to just recognize that people creep, creep in unnoticed. Sometimes they arise from amongst ourselves. I mean, that's what this says. And so we need to be people that are paying attention. So um, there's two things that he mentions here. So I would say category-wise, you know that a person's a false teacher if they teach things that are wrong, that, are de- that depart from Scripture. And you know somebody's a false teacher if they live an ungodly life. Sometimes it's not the message. Sometimes it's the life they're living. Those are two things. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Because by doing that, you will ensure salvation both for yourselves and for those who hear you. Because sometimes it's our lifestyle that leads us astray. So there's two examples in this passage that he uses. And um, he says this. Um, He says... These are the two things they do. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and they deny our master, Jesus Christ. Um, God's grace is amazingly helpful. God's grace is amazingly helpful. Sensuality is amazingly destructive. But you want to know something. If you, if you talk about God's grace it can be kind of hard to figure out how to apply that. And sometimes God's grace can be tweaked a little bit to actually encourage sensuality rather than being the great message of God's grace that it is. And that's how false teaching always works. They take a truth and then they twist it just a little bit so instead of being helpful, it's harmful. Let's think about this. God's message of grace. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've been harmed by, no matter what sin you've fallen into, Jesus can rescue you. God takes broken lives. He puts them back together. God's grace is enough for any sin you have ever gone through in your life. You know, everybody wants to look down on somebody. So if you go to prison, do you know prisoners have people that they look down on? You want to know who prisoners look down on? They look down on people that are physically abusive to their wife. So if you're, if you're in uh, prison for domestic violence, everybody likes to beat you up because they feel better than you. And there's another thing. They, they really look down on child molesters. So if you go to prison and you're a child molester, um, prison's a tough place for child molesters, but it's because everybody wants to look down on somebody. Everybody's trying to figure out who's worse than me. You want to know that the message of the gospel is for everybody no matter who they are, no matter what sin they've gone through, no matter what your history is, God can save you and God can change you. That's the message of grace. And sometimes we don't like that. There are certain people we would like to say, yeah, but God's grace doesn't apply to them. No, God's grace applies to everybody. It doesn't matter what kind of addiction. It doesn't matter what kind of problem you have. God can change you. He can turn your life around. God loves you. Forgiveness is available. That's an, a, an amazing message. How about at this church, I don't care who you are or what you've been through, we love you and we accept you where you are. And if you're struggling with things, it's okay, you're welcome here. How about there is nothing in your life that God won't forgive? 
You don't have to come here and pretend to be somebody else. You can find people here. You could talk about the real things going on in your life, and people will love you and care about you and help you. I mean, is that not a powerful message? Um, you may think you can't change. I could tell you right now, God can change you. That's the true message of God's grace. So you want to know how to spin that a little bit? Um, come here. We love you. We accept you how you are. Uh, you think sinful things are good for you? Hey, we're not going to speak to that. Uh, yeah, no, no, you're welcome here as you are, sinful, doing things that are destroying you, that are destroying your life, that are destroying your, no, hey, we're not, we're not judgmental here. We don't tell people that what they think is wrong. Um, you know what? If pursuing that sin helps you, if pursuing that sin is a good thing in your life, we support that because we want you to be happy and encouraged. We're gracious. Or do we show up and we say, we love you, we care about you, and this is wrong, this is destructive, and we're going to help you in a loving, gracious, kind way. We're going to help you understand that that's not good for you. We're going to help you understand how that hurts you. We're going to help you understand that God made and designed life. He knows everything. He knows what's right. And even if it doesn't seem like it, no, this is what's best for you. And sometimes um, in the church, we can switch what God's grace is. God's grace doesn't say sin's okay, it doesn't hurt, and it's acceptable. That's not God's grace. God's grace says we love you, and we're going to help your mind be transformed. See, I just think about, like, my own kids. I see my kids pursuing sinful things. I'm going to step into their life and say, I love you, and I know how hard this might be to hear, but no, that's not going to make you happy. That's not going to satisfy you. God made you. He knows how to live life better than you do, and this isn't it. And I'm going to tell him the truth. I thought about that when my dad was passing away, and I just thought, you know what? It seems so harsh and so unkind to say, Dad, you're headed for separation from God forever. How do you say that to a person moments before they know they might die? Doesn't that seem mean-spirited? But if he leaves this world and I feel better about my conversation with him, but he spends forever separated from God, how's that loving and merciful? Now, I love my dad enough to tell him the truth. But when I got a phone call from a lady who had been living a lesbian life and her girlfriend called me and said, my girlfriend's about to pass away and she's really stressed out and somebody needs to talk to her and I need somebody who will say whatever they need to say to make her feel better. And I just said, you know, I'll come and I'll talk to her, but I'm only going to say what the Bible says, and I think it'll make her feel better, but my priority can't be what I think will make her feel better. It has to be what's true. And I was, I just got to tell you guys, it's a weakness in myself. Um, you know, it's, I'm confessing this to you, but I was so stressed out, and I was praying so hard, Lord, let me tell her the truth. How can I tell her the truth in a gracious, loving way? But I couldn't picture, like, for, uh, for a couple days, I couldn't picture sitting there and telling her the gospel message moments before she is going to leave this world. It seems so mean and so unkind. And so I just begged God for help, and then I showed up, and I read Scripture, and I explained Scripture to her, and she prayed to receive Christ. And her girlfriend prayed to receive Christ too. But 
I don't think for her girlfriend, uh, she was really praying to receive Christ. She was trying to let her dying girlfriend know this is okay. And so she did it too to be a help to, to her girlfriend that was passing away. And, um, and you know what? I don't know how the Lord is going to use that conversation, but far too often we think that being gracious and being merciful is never saying anything that's going to upset anybody. And we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't want people to be upset by things we do and say. But we should be willing to tell people the truth that they need to hear. And these people, these false teachers, man, that was a way easier message. Hey, sensuality, it's okay. It makes you happy. Go ahead and do it. We're not judgmental here. And they also denied who Jesus was. They were open-minded. I heard a friend say some people are so open-minded that their brain falls out. Um, being open-minded about who Jesus is, that's the other thing they do. They change Jesus' work or they change the person of who Jesus is. And you want to know something? Good teachers don't do that. Um, God's grace. You want to know one of the things that God's grace does? God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And I should have put the previous verse, but it just says the grace of God appeared, teaching us to deny ungodliness. See, that's true grace. God's grace is enough to cover anything in your life, but God's grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. Um, okay. We're going to, in a sense, I'm not going to read the whole middle section, but the whole middle section of Jude basically is just Jude going through the Old Testament with Sodom and Gomorrah and God killing everybody there, burning everybody in fire. Um, he talks about bringing people out of Egypt and, and how he made people wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they all died because they refused to believe and obey him. And he just goes on these examples of God's judgment. And then he talks about what these false teachers are like. And he describes them using the Old Testament and just saying, these are pictures and examples that we need to understand. And so he does that. Marks of a false teacher. Um, I'll just quickly review some marks of a false teacher. These are common qualities that you've heard before about diatrophies, but these are all listed here in, in Jude. Actually, some of these qualities are actually listed like five times in different ways. One of the big ones is ungodliness. They say it so many different ways. If you just read the book of Jude, it talks about these false teachers as ungodly like probably six times. I, I didn't count it, but a bunch of different ways to say these men are sinful. But here's the list. They twist the truth. They're rebellious against God's authority. They're prideful. In fact, Michael the archangel, when he disputes against, uh, um, against Satan for the, over the body of Moses, he, Michael the archangel, the most powerful angel, he doesn't say, Satan, get behind me. Satan, I tell you to do this. Satan, I tell you to do that. He's, a, he's the archangel. You know what he does? He takes a step back. He says, the Lord rebuke you. 
These false teachers revile angelic majesties. They have no idea what they're even talking about. They're so prideful and so arrogant. They're self-serving. That's listed a bunch of different angles. They're in it for what they can get. They're ungodly. They cause division. They sow seeds of, of discontent. They undermine other people in the church. Instead of bringing unity, they bring division. And they're dishonest. These are marks of false teachers. So here's the third thing we need to make sure that we do. And that is that we need to remain faithful to the eternal priorities that God has given us. Um, a person of the word. We need to be people of the word who are close to God. We need to have a ministry of mercy and rescue. And we need to understand that we're kept in God's power. I do want to read this passage with you. Jude 1.17, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. They are worldly pe people, devoid of the spirit. I'm gonna tell you guys something about this church that really struck me when I was candidating and as I've met people and as I've spent time with people is you can tell that they have the Holy Spirit in them. Like I'm just like, okay, this person, they don't even have that much training in this area, but it's like they just come to the truth about this. As I talk to people, just as I sensed godly desires and love that they had for people and priorities, and I just thought, okay, this is a church full of people who have the Holy Spirit in their life. And as we were thinking about, do we want to come here? That was one of the main things that said, okay, I fit. I want to be in this place. I want to be around people who have the Holy Spirit and who love the Lord. But these false teachers are devoid of the Spirit. And it says that um, we need to pay attention and know those people are coming. So that's like staying close to God's word, understanding what God says and being committed to it. But you, and this is a, this is a contrast, but you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. That's personally staying close to God. I mean, obviously staying close to the Lord through his word, but staying close to God in prayer keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So we're waiting for Jesus, knowing he's coming back. And then look at verse 22. This is to be the nature of our ministry. Have mercy on those who doubt. You ever, you ever struggle with doubt in your life? Wonder if it's really true? Uh, maybe, maybe doubting whether or not something that God says is true. Just saying, I know God says I'm supposed to do this, but that just seems so wrong. I just don't want to do that. This seems like the wrong thing to do, but God says I'm supposed to. Have you ever struggled with doubt in your life? I think one of the most harmful things in a church is when nobody's allowed to doubt when you gotta just pretend that you believe things. Now, I've seen so many parents make this mistake. Like their kids will say, you know, I'm, I wonder if the Bible's even inspired, I wonder if God's real. And you, and you get parents that are so scared that their kids might reject Christ, that their kids might reject the Bible, that they put all kinds of pressure on them. I, I've seen parents 
that are so afraid that their kids are going to run off into some particular sinful lifestyle that they mock their kids, that they'll tell jokes about that thing, and, and they're trying to, like, create this negative thing. Parents who will say things like, oh, man, if my kid ever did something like that, I'd kick him out of the house. And it's like they're building all these walls thinking that that will help. That kind of thing never helps. The church and your family and you need to be a safe person to struggle with. If my kids are questioning things, I don't want them to be afraid to tell me. If my kids are feeling like, hey, this sin issue is pulling me this way, I don't want them to feel like they can't come to me and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking and this is how I'm feeling and this is what I'm going through. And the church needs to be a place that has mercy on people who doubt that says, oh, you're doubting, you're struggling with that, you're, you're needing help to work that through, I'm gonna work that through with you. You know what, I doubted before too. This is how the Lord helped me. Or you know what, I've never doubted, I've actually never struggled with that thing, but I know somebody who has. Go talk to this person. The Lord has worked in their life and helped them through it and let them help you through it. And so the church needs to be a place that is showing mercy on people who doubt, not pressuring people to line up and just say the things that they're supposed to say but we're also not afraid to say what's true. To save others by snatching them out of the fire. See, as the church and as Christians, we realize that without Christ, people are lost. They are headed for a devastating eternity, and we're there to snatch them out of the fire. We have a ministry and an urgency to reach people because they are headed for a disaster that they can't even understand. And so we're there to be merciful on people who doubt, to snatch people out of the fire. And then I love the way he comes back here and he says, and to others, to just show mercy with fear. So just this category of being merciful, but with reverence for God in our mercy. And this next thing comes naturally, right? Um, because it says here, it goes on and it says, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. See, as the church, we think rightly about life. We see the destruction and the devastation that comes in people's lives when they don't know what God says about life. Maybe they were raised being taught to believe something and as they follow that, it's destructive and personally harmful. We see that devastation and that destruction and we hate it. Now, that's also supposed to mean that we hate those sinful things in our own life. And so we hate that when we see that sin because we see the destruction, we see what it, what it means, but the reality is we also all struggle with sinful things ourselves, which helps us to be merciful and gracious and kind. All right couple of my favorite verses, and here's where we'll, where we'll close. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forever. You know, we look at that, we see the sin struggle in our own life, and sometimes you could think, man, that, that person, he fell off the cliff, and sometimes I feel like I'm about to fall off the cliff. You know, our, we, we're never saying, oh, boy, I'm strong enough, and I can do this myself. 
I'll just tell you, if, if you could lose your salvation, I would have lost mine already. Um, I am so thankful that I rely on the power of Jesus in my life. And I read this verse and I say, no, I may not be strong enough to stay faithful to the end, but God is strong enough to keep me to the end. That's, we, we rely on God's strength. And when you are talking to somebody and ministering to somebody who's a believer and who's struggling in their life, one of the things we say is you may not think you can win this, but God can win this. Trust him, rely on him, and it doesn't matter how many times you blow it, God loves you, he'll forgive you, and he'll, he'll take your life, put it back together. Never stop trying to honor the Lord in your life. Don't just get discouraged because you fail because God's powerful enough to do it. Now, I wouldn't have picked that for this morning, but it's Jude and it was next. So I hope you were encouraged. We got two weeks of the book of Revelation. That's going to be fun. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness. And God, help us to have the right understanding of grace, that we would not be judgmental, that we would not be hard on people. Lord, we wouldn't be hard on people that are outside, that we wouldn't be hard on people that are inside. Help us this place to be a safe place. But Lord, help us to be people that are of the truth, that love you, that are more concerned with pleasing you than people, pleasing the people around us, that are willing to make personal sacrifices to help people who need it. We ask these things in your name. Amen.